Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. Now, it could just be me, but it feels like there's a lot of news going on lately. The war in Ukraine reports of at least two dead tonight in Poland. CNN projects that Republicans will win control of the U.S. House of Representatives, reclaiming a majority for the first time in four years. It's official. Elon Musk will be reinstating former President Donald Trump's Twitter account. Fans of Taylor Swift crashed the Ticketmaster website today as pre-sale tickets to her first concert tour in five years went up for grabs. But for all the Twittering and campaign announcements and botched ticket sales, there's one story in particular that made our policy antenna go up. Tonight, the cryptocurrency world is reeling after the meltdown of one of its most popular trading platforms. Before the collapse of FTX and its sister company, Alameda Research, Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF, was a well-known presence to lawmakers and regulators. And it kind of seemed like a match made in heaven. Until recently. Cue the Warren G. Regulators. You regulate any stealing of his property. We're damn good, too. But you can't be any geek off the street. Gotta be handy with the steel if you know what I mean. Earn you keep. Regulators! Mount up. In an interview with our colleague Kelsey Piper, the now disgraced former CEO gave her quite the pull quote Fuck regulators. Yeah, it's bold. And that got us thinking what is the state of cryptocurrency regulation? And what's on the horizon for money whose very purpose to some people? is to be ungovernable. Before we get into all of that, let's be real here for a second. Crypto is confusing. So, to lay down some groundwork, we called up one of our Vox Media colleagues. My name is Liz Lopato, and I am a senior writer at The Verge. First, for a quick refresher... We've all heard about Bitcoin and Dogecoin and Ethereum and all these different cryptocurrencies. Tell us about FTT. So I am going to back out a little bit because there's no way to do this simply. 
Essentially, what happened was after the invention of Bitcoin, people started to realize they could create other coins to do other things. And so like Ethereum, for instance, the idea is that it's a large world computer and you can do things with it, whether that's decentralized finance or NFTs or whatever. The idea is that it's a bit more flexible and a bit more useful than Bitcoin and it works differently. Ethereum isn't the only thing that has sort of been inspired by Bitcoin. There are also all of these other tokens, which you may remember from like the 2017, 2018 era. All these companies were essentially creating tokens as a way of raising money. And then the the government was like, yo, those are unlicensed securities and started prosecuting. And then during the pandemic, there was this resurgence in interest in cryptocurrency and trading and all of that. As a result of the 2017 and 2018 period, though, the way that people thought about tokens changed. And so the idea was that they needed to have a utility because that way they weren't a security. And so FTT is a utility token. The idea is that it gives you a small discount on trading on FTX. And, you know, it's traded, as all of these tokens are, for value. And so the reason why FTT matters in this whole saga is that one of the things to keep in mind about tokenomics is that not everything that's trading is the entirety of the tokens. Only a small portion of the available tokens were trading. The rest were being held by FTX and Alameda. Mm. So whatever the value was as it was being traded, it was not the fully diluted value of the token. Because if all of that token had become available at the same time, the price would have plummeted. Imagine you and I are at a store and there's only one Snickers bar left. Okay. Oh God, we're gonna have to fight it out, aren't we? We are. We're gonna like we're gonna have a little bidding war over the one Snickers bar. But let's say somebody, like one of the staff, goes to the back and they find out that there's like a whole case of Snickers suddenly we're not going to want to pay as much for that one Mm. Snickers bar. So in this metaphor, the token reserve, that's the box of Snickers in the back. And the stuff that's being traded is the one Snickers bar out front. FTT is a cryptocurrency that was created for and by FTX, right? Yeah, it was a way for... FTX to make money. That's the the case for most of these tokens. Like, if you have other things involved, it might not be securities. Like, that is still an open regulatory question. But with something like FTT, what it does is, ideally, it, like, gives you, like, a discount in trading. And so, like, if you're doing a bunch of large orders, like, maybe that's useful to you and you you can use it in that way. So you go out, you buy a bunch of FTT to get a discount on whatever else you're doing. And when it comes to cryptocurrency exchanges, is the practice of an exchange creating its own currency like this normal? Is this a typical practice? Yeah. I mean, like, you see this also with Binance, the BNB token. You know, you see it with the Board 8 Back Club. They have they have their own uh, ApeCoin, they call it. They're used as a, for companies as a way of, like, potentially creating money. So... For instance, with FTT, it looks like (laughs) part of the point of this was like it was a token that could be used in order to sort of shore up the balance sheet of Alameda Research. I'm trying to think of this, you know, even in a non-crypto sense. I'm I'm imagining like, like say I'm going to Sephora. Like Sephora isn't like, hey, we made our own Sephora money. Here you go. Yes, they are. Their own. 
Is that what my VIB points are? 100%. That is exactly what that okay. is. Okay. Okay. That's what my V... Okay. So essentially, FTT is like your crypto VIB points. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. That... I am both embarrassed and impressed with how much that analogy works for me in this. That's very funny. No, that's like, that's about right. I mean, like the utility token, it doesn't give you a part of the platform revenue. It's not a share in FTX. It doesn't give you control over the governance of the treasury. It doesn't do any of those things. It is essentially like a rewards point. Oh, wow. Okay. That's okay. That's very helpful. Okay. So now that we've established what FTT is, let's get into FTX and its collapse and what exactly happened here. This was like a shining moment for Coindesk. Like, shout out to them for doing some killer journalism. They published a balance sheet for Alameda Research, which is FTX's sister company. And what they found was the asset that was most held on that balance sheet was FTT. But essentially, they're holding these, like, rewards points. And they're saying, oh, well, look, if you look at the market for rewards points, it's trading at, you know, some some amount of money. And so by that estimate, like, that's what our balance sheet is. You know, this is, this is worth a lot of money because that's what it's trading at. And it's dangerous because, as we saw, if there is a decline in the value of the rewards points, then your balance sheet is in real trouble. So what ends up happening after this publication is that weekend, a competitor to FTX, CZ is what he's known in the crypto industry as, he runs a, uh, an exchange called Binance. And it turns out that he owns a bunch of FTT because he was an original investor in FTX. And when he exited FTX, the way that they paid him off was in FTT tokens. So he's like, all right, I'm exiting this position. I'm going to sell this. I'm going to try not to, like, you know, disrupt the market too much, but I'm definitely selling. And here's the thing. In finance, people sell all the time, but they don't announce it. Mm. And so having somebody this prominent with this large of a position in FTT announce that he was selling, essentially what he did was, like, kneecap the company. So we saw the value of FTT begin to really fall. And again, because we all know that the balance sheet is stapled to FTT, that means that Alameda is in real big trouble now. A couple days later, CZ's like, hey, I've signed a letter of intent to buy FTX and stop what is essentially a bank run. You know, it's not binding. Like, I haven't done due diligence yet, but I, you know, I intend to buy it and, like, bail it out. And so at that point, I'm like, all right, cool. Well, that was, like, some, like, nasty corporate raiderism. <laughs> like, Carl Icahn's jealous. Nice work. <laughs> and then the next day, he was like, just kidding. I'm not buying this. this wow. Uh-huh. And that's when, that's when it really, I would say, turned into a debacle. Because there was a hole in the balance sheet enormous hole in the balance sheet. There's a bunch of customer funds that got lent out to Alameda and we're still not quite sure where they went in the bankruptcy filing. Listen, I was I was reading through that thing. It's a spicy meatball of a of a filing. It's a banger, right? Like it opens with like, I know Enron and this is no Enron. It's worse. <laughs> so it turns out that there's this enormous hole in the balance sheet. The customer funds have been lent explicitly against the terms of service of FTX, by the way, to Alameda. 
And I, I still don't really understand what Alameda did with the money. I don't understand where the money went because there, there was actual money involved and now it seems to be missing. And, you know, if you like look at this filing, we discover that like the new CEO of FTX has no idea where all the bank accounts are because nobody kept records of all of the bank accounts. There's a bunch of stuff on the ventures that are missing. And also they can't even adequately identify who the employees at FTX were because that wasn't kept as a record either. That's very chaotic. I mean, listen, I love chaos. It's like my favorite thing. Um, And this is like going to be like a steady supply of chaos for me for like at least the next five years. (laughs) Like they were approving outlays with Slack emojis. Like there was no like you have to like register with the accounting department and like do like a concur whatever. Like, no, it was like, can I have this money? And then somebody would respond with a Slack emoji. And that's how they were keeping track. And like the balance sheet, which was published by the Financial Times, is full of terrors. There's like a bunch of stuff that doesn't totally make sense. But my personal favorite part is an entry that is hidden, poorly internally labeled fiat at account. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't seem good. There are no Bitcoin assets on the balance sheet, but there is something called Trump lose. I mean, like, it's just it. it, it uh, I, mm, it's like the kind of balance sheet that I would expect maybe somebody in like a ninth grade business class to make. Let's put it that way. Can you tell us more about Sam Bigman Freed, a.k.a. SBF? Who is he and what was his reputation prior to the collapse of FTX? Well, I would say up until like two weeks ago, he was the poster boy of responsible crypto, mm. which again, very ironic. But he had made a real splashy play to try to get retail investors involved in FTX. So, you know, that was a lot of sports sponsorships, making sure that he was in front of sports betters, you know, the FTX Arena, Giselle Bunchen and Tom Brady, like Steph Curry, all of whom, like, those celebrities, by the way, are now being sued for promoting FTX. So good luck to everyone. Yikes. But essentially, he wanted to, like, push the brand. And one of the ways that he chose to do that was by donating a lot of money and doing a lot of lobbying on behalf of crypto regulation in Congress. So, you know, we have him testifying in front of Congress. We have him taking meetings with Gary Gensler, who is the head of the SEC. We have, you know, all of these sort of connections to the political establishment Not necessarily, I think, because he was the most effective lobbyist on crypto, but because it was important for consumers to see him talking to lawmakers so that he looked more legit. Are there any particular policies or practices that got us here, especially when it comes to, you know, cryptocurrency as a whole? I want to just say that I think cryptocurrency is specifically about regulatory arbitrage. It's a non-state currency. Bitcoin specifically is a non-state currency. And it's meant to be uncensorable. It's meant to be something that the state cannot shut down. And it comes from this sort of libertarian ideology from a cypherpunk mailing list about, you know, like creating something that is uncensorable, that has no government, like the government can't interfere with it, like it's peer-to-peer. It's like kind of radical. So in terms of regulatory policy... First of all, SBF is not in the U.S. Mm, yeah, he's chilling in the Bahamas. He's in the Bahamas still. That's right. He's in the Bahamas. FTX is in the Bahamas. Alameda Research, I think, is in Hong Kong. 
So like when we talk about regulatory policy, we're talking about policy across like hundreds of countries because like the U.S. isn't the only place where cryptocurrency lives. But if we are talking specifically about the U.S., I think one of the things that's worth keeping in mind here is a lot of the stuff that SBF was doing is already illegal. Mm, mm, okay. Okay. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Like, I, allegedly, allegedly doing, I guess I should say. Like, violating your own terms of service to loan your customer funds to a sister hedge fund. Like, okay, A of all. So, like, trading against your customers, not cool. And two, like, again, violating your terms of service. Like, that, like, right there, that's wrong. You can't do that. Like, that is lawsuits and, like, potentially fraud. You know, I think that there are questions about how to regulate cryptocurrency in a really serious way, right? But one of the reasons I think everyone's pretty mad at the regulators right now is that the stuff was already illegal. Mm. Like, you don't need special laws to go after this. You can do that with existing laws if you're paying any kind of attention. And that's, I think, where the rage at regulators is coming from. Because instead of being watchdogs, it kind of seems like they were asleep at the wheel. All right, Liz Lapato, thank you so much. Thank you. Next, we dive into the world of regulation and ask the question, what purpose does cryptocurrency even serve? We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. 
Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm John Quillen Hill. Okay, so we talked with The Verge's Liz Lapato to dive into the basics around the fall of FTX and its founder, SBF. But we wanted to dive further into the regulations, or lack thereof, that got us here. So we made a phone call. Is Am I saying your name right? Uh-huh, it's John Quillen. Or you can call me JQ. They're interchangeable. John Quillen. Mm-hmm. How do you pronounce your last name? Yadav. Yadav? Okay. Yeah, or you can do YY. Oh, YY. I love that. Yeah, JQ and YY. Yeah, JQ and YY. <laughs> talking about cryptocurrency. <laughs> Sounds perfect. That's Yesha Yadav. She's a professor of law and associate dean at Vanderbilt Law School and a financial regulation expert. Okay, so... We're here to talk about sort of this whole FTX debacle and what it means for regulation. But I would love to start with a little bit of groundwork because there's this conversation about whether crypto is a currency or a commodity or security. Can you remind us what each of those are and what bucket you think cryptocurrency should go in? That's the... Trillion dollar question, JQ. <laughs> um, you don't hold up to start with the hard ones. <laughs> you know, this is the question that our regulators have been wrestling with for the better part of this last decade. And what's been happening here is trying to wrestle with what are the perimeters of our capital markets, right? Mm. The technical definition of a security in law comes from this case called SEC versus Howey. This is a superstar famous case, and it defines who we are as a marketplace. SEC versus Howey lays out these four requirements for what is a security. To have a security, you need an investment of money in a common enterprise for profit through the efforts of others. Now, that might sound like a really technical definition, but it's a super deep and fundamental statement of what our markets are about. Mm. And when we look at these different prongs, say the investment of money for profit, that implies risk, right? That implies uncertainty. That implies the need for folks who are in the market to get information about what they are actually putting their money into. Then you have things like in a common enterprise. Well, what's a common enterprise? That looks like something where different people are in it together, where they might not all know each other. And so they might not all be able to protect each other from the risk that they're taking on. So they need the help of the SEC and regulators to have their back. And then you have this final one called through the efforts of others. Now, what does that mean? That means that you're giving your money to someone else to look after. And we all know what can happen in that case, right? That someone takes your money and runs the frazzle away with it, right? Someone takes your money and gambles it away. Someone takes your money and takes too much risk with it, right? Mm. That's called agency costs in the technical term. But that's something that we all know, which is when you hand your money over to someone, they're not going to take care of it as much as you would take care of your own money, right? So these four different prongs come together to define what our capital market is. And for the last number of years or so, our regulators have been trying to figure out, are cryptocurrencies, tokens, digital assets, securities? And they're having a really tough time with it. And the reason why they're having a tough time with it is because not all crypto is the same. Mm. These are basically digital tokens that carry different kind of entitlements. When you're looking at things like Bitcoin or Ethereum, the difficulty there is that they're often quote-unquote, decentralized. What that means is that you're expected to protect yourself. You keep your own passwords, your own keys. 
they're not meant to be this whole central authority behind it. In fact, the idea is that there shouldn't be. Mm. So one of the difficulties we're coming up against, JQ, is that we're dealing in a world that is complex, more complex than the name crypto would suggest, which is why we're having these definitional problems. Can you talk a little bit about the commodity of it all? Because, I mean, that's, again, part of that million-dollar questions. What is a commodity and how is it different from a security? The definition of commodity is super interesting because when we look at commodity, we're looking at as real a life as we can imagine, right? Commodities are basically assets. When you go into the Technical Legal Act, the Commodities and Exchange Act, it has this list of agricultural commodities. Now, interestingly, it includes things like wheat and, you know, milk and orange juice. Onions, for some reason, are excluded. For whatever reason, the <laughs> oh. the law hates onions. Um, but, you know, by and large, these are hard assets, right? These are assets that we can touch, pick up, smell, feel. And what they reflect is a different kind of force that affects them. These are not rights necessarily to future cash flows, right? When you have a security, you get the rights to the future cash flows of a particular enterprise, the rights to its profits down the line, right? That is ephemeral. It's untouchable. It's dematerialized. It's invisible. But when you're having an asset, it's as visible as it gets. Mm. And what we have in the case of commodities, we have forces of supply and demand that govern um, how we price that asset, right? What the difference between commodity and a security expresses is different ways to think about risk. In the context of cash flow rights, you're looking at a huge amount of uncertainty where you don't necessarily know what the cash flows are going to be. You're going to have to predict them, look at the company's fundamentals. When you're looking at hard assets, you're going to look at things like supply and demand. You're going to look at who's producing it. You're going to look at where these things are stored. You're going to look at, you know, things like weather. Are they going to affect it? It's a slightly different model for thinking about what the nature of the asset is. And when we look at things like Bitcoin and Ether, for example, because they don't necessarily fit within this through the efforts of others and, you know, having common enterprises because we're looking after ourselves. Here we're thinking, are these digital assets actually like, you know, commodities, just assets that have a supply and demand issue rather than necessarily having this kind of rights to future cash flows from their use issue? It's a currency too. And currency is something, you know, that we as people just decide to give value and use it to buy things. And, you know, there are people who are getting their salaries in crypto. There are nations that are using crypto. How does the currency aspect fall into all of this? That's a really neat question for a number of reasons, because what we have when we have money is something that comes from faith, right? We have a dollar bill in our pockets. That dollar bill is actually a token, right? Mm. It's it's a it's a paper token. Like it might not have all the bells and whistles of a digital crypto, but it's a it's a freaking token, right? And the reason why that dollar bill actually has value that we want to have confidence is because we have confidence in the person that issued it, which is a US government. Now, currency is slightly different than that in the ways that countries have to legally declare that something is a currency, a legal tender for their particular monetary system. Mm. Now, in the case of Bitcoin, this raises some interesting questions. Now, as you mentioned, JQ, El Salvador and the Central African Republic decided that Bitcoin would be a legal tender within their economies. Now, that created some really complex problems for the world for the sort of international financial ecosystem. Mm. Calling something a currency means that 
it engages a whole different regulatory system. In other words, that other countries have to recognize it potentially as a currency, which means that they are potentially recognizing this extraterritorial, this very global asset as an actual currency. From a political standpoint, that can be slightly risky for different countries. In other words, that means that they're potentially acknowledging that this global asset class could potentially be an actual currency, which could actually undermine their own monetary sovereignty. Mm. And so what has happened, even though El Salvador and Central African Republic have declared Bitcoin, for example, to be a legal tender, is that it has not been embraced as a currency in sort of the international financial regulatory system. One, from the political economy sense that it would engage all of these questions of monetary sovereignty for other countries. And so what that has meant that, at least in the international financial regulatory system, the notion of this being a currency is something that is being scrupulously avoided. If it were to be a currency, it would engage a whole lot of different foreign exchange regulations as well within the international financial system. And so again, that would create a much more complicated dynamic for Bitcoin because it would then have to be, and those who are holding it and trading it would be subject to all these different regulations. Now, that has not happened yet uh, because from the political economy, at least as far as I read it, folks are very wary Countries are very wary mm. of recognizing Bitcoin, Ether, and others as currencies because that can potentially harm their own power to regulate their own marketplace within their own countries. Yeah, I mean, I I assume the United States would not like it if Bitcoin was more powerful than the dollar. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that would be, you know, a nightmare situation for the Fed and others. But the one thing about the dollar is that it's the dollar. And so it's going to take a lot to kill it. The dollar is the reserve currency for the global economy. It has enormous amounts of financial power, trading power. And in fact, the U.S. tends to be used as a de facto reserve currency in many different economies. Now, when you're looking at something like Bitcoin and Ether, they do not come with the same levels of institutional support. Mm. And so it's going to take a lot for uh, countries around the world, as well as people around the world, to embrace this asset class necessarily as something they can put their faith in to transact and trade with the same amount of confidence that they have in the case of the U.S. dollar. And so it's going to take a lot to get there. But of course, countries are concerned that their own monetary power can be curtailed, even at the fringe, even at the edges, and they're reluctant to let that happen. And so, you know, in the U.S. anyway, we consider Bitcoin, Ether to be an asset class. Question is it a security, is it a commodity? But certainly getting into the realms of currency, that is something that we're trying very hard to avoid. What is the likelihood that different cryptocurrencies would be regulated by different entities because they're doing all these different things, you know? Does it make sense for some to be with the Security and Exchange Commission and others to be with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission? You know, is is that out of the realm of possibility? You know, JQ, I feel like when I think about your question, it makes me get stressed out that <laughs> we have set up our regulatory system in a way that resembles like the Roy's in an episode of Succession. This whole scenario feels like an HBO-like drama. It feels like an HBO drama. I mean, th this is going to be an HBO drama when the dust settles. I'm pretty... Several seasons long. It's going to outdo <laughs> Game of Thrones. I don't, I don't see any doubt about that. But, you know, to me, it feels like the Roy's because we have this family of regulators that broadly is going to work together, that has a common purpose. 
But there's some games being played, mm. you know, and there's been a lot of jurisdictional turf warfare to get the institutional flex to be seen to be regulating crypto and have that power and have that reach and have that extension. Um, and so our regulators have actually been jostling instead of working together to try and figure out exactly what it is that they should be regulating, right? And what the different kind of crypto tokens represent, their potential entitlements, their functions, and so forth to decide which amongst them should have authority or potentially joint authority over these different assets. Now, to take one example, you know, you have Bitcoin Ether on the one hand. On the other hand, you have these stable coins. Stable coins are basically assets that are supposed to maintain a one-to-one peg, one token to one dollar. And so many commentators argue that this works more like more like a banking asset. Mm. In other words, that this is money that's supposed to be super, super safe, right? It's meant to be used um, with confidence as a potential asset for payments. And in many cases, actually, like in certain economies, like in the gaming economy or in the crypto economy, that's exactly what people use it for as a replacement for fiat. And so do we engage a different regulatory architecture in that context mm. that looks to maintain the safety and the soundness of the institutions that are issuing stable coins to make sure that they have sufficient backing for the promise that every token is going to be supported by $1. And so these conversations take time. They take having all of our heads come together and for us to work together to really consider what the permutations of these different coins are and how we set up a regulatory architecture to deal with it. But unfortunately, it's just felt like we are in a hot drama and we haven't been able to get there yet. What does crypto regulation look like right now? Like sans any bills, sans any, you know, executive orders. What does it look like in the country right now? I don't want to sound like a downer here, but the picture is not a pretty one. Mm. In other words, that there are two levels of regulation that we're thinking about here, which is one, we are dealing with an industry that has lacked a comprehensive framework for regulation because we've struggled so hard with, is it a security? Is it a commodity? Is it a currency? We've not come up with some kind of overarching framework to deal with. Well, how are we going to bring these tokens to market? What kind of disclosure might we need? What kind of support for the issuers? Uh, What kind of organizational control should these issuers have? What do we do about crypto exchanges that are transacting in these different kinds of tokens? So all of those deep, comprehensive thought processes that would govern regulation there, they really haven't come to fruition. So we haven't got a particularly comprehensive framework for crypto oversight in our country. What we do have is piecemeal authority. In other words, crypto exchanges are usually regulated as money services businesses. Technically, what that means is that They have to comply with money laundering controls, terrorist financing controls. So there's a discrete set of regulations that do apply to them. Of course, the general body of law against fraud and theft and criminal activity will apply in any event. But as far as a comprehensive framework for oversight, we don't necessarily have that in the context of the crypto ecosystem as a whole. We do regulate the traditional financial system against crypto, Mm. right? In other words, we've tried to firewall some of the banking system, the mutual funds and others from being able to engage freely with crypto. So for example, there are some real costs on banks if they want to hold crypto assets um, they have to, you know, pay a pretty high price to do so. And so we've tried to create a firewall around our traditional financial system. So there are rules in that context, but for the industry as a whole, we don't necessarily have a, a particular framework in place. I'm glad you brought up fraud because we spoke with Liz Lapato of The Verge earlier just to, you know, lay out the groundwork. And 
She pointed out that a lot of what happened with FTX actually is illegal. Like, they violated their own terms of service, and you are not supposed to do that. Is is there more to do, especially when it comes to FTX, if, you know, they, they broke the law, they did illegal things? You know, there's a couple of things to consider. This is going to be a very long, drawn-out process, and it's going to require a lot of legal firepower to dissect exactly what went wrong and whether or not it rises to the level of criminal liability. Now, there are two things to consider. Firstly, we have these terms and conditions for the assets that FTX was holding uh, for the customers that are on the exchange. Now, the terms and conditions, as far as I understand it, uh, made sure that, at least in the latest version, that the customers were legally entitled to their assets and that FTX could not go ahead and gamble with those assets. There is definitely evidence uh, currently to suggest that FTX was siphoning those assets off to Alameda that was then using those assets to take very risky bets. Now, the question is, well, okay, well, this might have been a breach of the contract. Was it an intentional desire to Mm. defraud the customer, right? In other words, was there intent behind it or was this a case of extremely bad management. Now, what is coming out in the disclosures that were being made by John Ray, the current CEO of FTX, the bankruptcy expert, what that suggests is that FTX was a complete shit show when it came to its own documentation, its own internal processes, and we can talk about this. This is a cluster on an epic scale, mm. right? And so, you know, there is there, there could be an argument to suggest that there was just no intent, we, there was just no system. Then there's the the other side of it, which is to say, look, the fact that you had no system could suggest some kind of intent. In other words, you were so incredibly callous and reckless that it basically meant you didn't care less one way or the other. And that in itself could provide some evidence of intent. So the crucial showing here for fraud anyway, requires intent. Otherwise, certainly one could assert a breach of contract, which would then be a civil claim that could be brought uh, by customers potentially down the line. U.S. regulation can only go so far. FTX was in the Bahamas, and it was for a reason, and it wasn't just because of the weather. (laughs) The weather may have had something to do with it. The weather, the sea, the Bahama Mama drinks, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That and the lack of regulation. Is there a way for the U.S. to regulate internationally? Is that possible? Absolutely is possible. So a couple of things that I should mention, JQ, which is that one of the reasons why um, SBF and FTX decided to go to Bahamas is because they promised a regulatory framework for crypto, right? Mm -hmm. And so they have an actual act. They have a couple of acts, actually. The DARE Act, um, the Digital Assets and Registered Exchanges Act, I believe it's called, that set out a comprehensive framework for for regulation. They weren't arguing about, is it a security? Is it a commodity? They have digital tokens and they have rules with respect to how you bring those tokens to market and what you do with the exchanges that want to list and trade them. Now, the U.S., nevertheless, certainly has to recognize the fact that FTX was incorporated in the Bahamas. But apart from that, the U.S. does have a lot of extraterritorial authority. One thing to remember is that the U.S. is very involved in how its payment system is organized. Mm -hmm. Payment system equals dollar, equals global reserve currency, equals once you touch it, 
you can potentially come under the jurisdiction of the Department of Justice, right? So the extraterritorial reach of U.S. regulation, particularly in the context of wire fraud, money laundering, and so forth, can be extremely broad. But even beyond that, you know, the U.S. has been a kind of global regulator for a number of reasons, because, in fact, many of its statutes do allow for more extraterritorial authority than you might imagine. In addition, our courts are very popular with international litigants, right? So people love to file in the U.S. because we provide expertise. We provide an institutional structure that is extremely experienced. And so that's why we saw FTX file in Delaware Um, for Chapter 11, because Chapter 11 is a very special statute that not every country has. In fact, very few do have equivalents to Chapter 11. We have this, this absolute OG of a bankruptcy statute that allows companies, if they do it right, to potentially come back from the dead, right? We have a whole institutional structure that enables that to happen, to sell assets, to deal with contracts, to pay out immediately important contract parties. We have a really good system for that. The FTX debacle is obviously so much larger than these, but the way it plummeted so quickly, it reminds me of Theranos. It reminds me of WeWork. I mean, obviously, they're dealing with different entities, different types of regulation, but is there a thread there, like even a cultural one? Like, what's going on here? The interesting observation you make, JQ, is that so much of this reflects a complete failure of confidence, right? Mm -hmm. That what happens when you lose trust in a firm and when you decide that that firm is in fact not worth exactly what you think it was worth. And in the context of Theranos, in the context of WeWork, for example, investors lost faith in these institutions extremely quickly, which resulted in plummeting valuations. Now, in the case of financial markets, it's unsurprising to those of us who research in this area why FTX would fail so quickly, so fast. Because what happened to it, the trigger, the dynamite, the match that lit the fire was a classic run. Mm. What that means is that when you're holding customer assets and they lose faith in you, what's the rational thing they're going to do? They're going to make a run for their money, right? They're going to try and get there faster than the other person. And when you're dealing with an exchange that you think may not even have your assets, you're going to run 10 times faster to get there. And so it's unsurprising that in an age of social media, when this information gets around really quickly and CZ, Chengping Zhao, sent out that tweet, the Coindesk report came out that those who were customers of FTX ran there as quickly as possible. And sure enough, $5 billion worth of withdrawal requests were made. So the amplified risk in this institution was made even more dangerous by the fact that we're dealing with an institution that's susceptible to runs. And that's exactly what happened. Beyond that, obviously, as soon as it becomes clear that this institution does not have the cash, the overall value of its going concern is going to plummet. And that obviously happens very fast when it's discovered that there is a larger loss of confidence amongst not just the customers, but also the investors and others that are stakeholders of FTX. Next up, the future of cryptocurrency regulation. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. 
complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This is The Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. Yesha, is there a policy fix for what happened with FTX or are the free markets just always gonna free market? Is, is stuff like this just gonna keep happening? There is a policy fix to the extent that we really need to try and learn from our mistakes. I think what's been amazing for all of us in this room to think about is the fact that so many experts got it wrong, right? Mm. Like when we look back at the FTX debacle, it seems so insane that we didn't spot the warning signs. The fact that there appears to be Excel spreadsheets that are so bizarre and empty and full of holes and crappy assumptions and red lines. And, you know, the fact that the top investors in our entire world in Silicon Valley, who are supposed to be the most educated about investments and ventures and so forth, didn't capture some of the basic risks here. And the fact that they were so taken in by the culture personality of one person, shouldn't that be something that we try and fix much more systematically? Because like you said, it keeps happening again and again and again. We saw that in the case of Theranos, for example, right? Having a board that barely provided any accountability whatsoever, that couldn't check that these technologies were actually working, and yet you ended up with a company with a $9 billion valuation. Before that, you had Enron, which was as Wall Street as it gets. And after Enron, we had the financial crisis again, right? Which is, you know, a way in which we were trusting products we were trusting investment banks and others that were making promises about their solvency that could not be borne out in practice. Now, obviously, with hindsight, everything looks so, you know, so obvious, but we keep making these heuristic mistakes again and again and again. And there needs to be a way in which we are able to immunize ourselves much more systematically against becoming greedy, against letting that greed overtake rationality and our ability to really think through the fundamentals of the different investments and assets that we are putting our money into because we seem to be getting it wrong on a regular basis. I think so much of the appeal of cryptocurrency for some people is the fact that it is decentralized, is the fact that, you know, it doesn't have these regulations. And it makes me wonder, is the future of money ungovernable? Like, is there just a future where we can't regulate this? It's interesting that the decentralized perspective is one that might potentially become the dominant one. Right now, it feels like a lot of folks, even within this world, who were potentially anti-regulation or skeptical of regulation, right? Suddenly, they realize that actually regulation is necessary for two reasons. One, it makes the institutions that govern the crypto economy potentially safer, right? So when you look at the entities in the US in FTX that are actually solvent, that could generate value, right? Those are the the regulated entities within the corporate structure. They include ones like LedgerX that's overseen by the CFTC, right? There are a couple of SEC regulated entities and they're, they're solvent. So regulation can potentially make a positive impact here, right? If done properly. In addition, regulation could be necessary and important and, and actually existentially significant for the crypto industry because it's a way 
way to build trust. It's a way to restore credibility. It's a way to legitimize this industry after suffering the setback that is FTX. Now, the FTX's scale of the FTX setback is very hard to overstate because FTX was the one exchange that was promising a degree of confidence building within the market that the private entities could actually behave themselves. FTX would try and come across as the golden institution within the crypto economy that was very keen to look as highly governed as possible. And the fact that it's failing arguably makes a stronger case for regulators and other third-party certification mechanisms to come forward as a way to build trust within this economy. So I think that the the notion that we will end up in a world that's totally decentralized, I think it's much harder now than before to the extent that trying to get normal, everyday people engaged in crypto again would probably require certification from regulation as a whole in order to bring some value back to this market in a way that is more persistent and lasting. And and there is an effort to do that regulation through the Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act, otherwise known as the DCCPA. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What is the DCCPA and what does it do? So the DCCPA is a legislative effort designed to regulate digital commodities, as it were, to create this this asset class of digital commodities to bring that within the regulatory framework. And it was a bill that was sort of advancing, that was being debated, that was being lobbied about. Now, one of the aspects of DCCPA that was quite interesting was that some of the core advocates of DCCPA included, obviously, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. Mm. And so one of the big question marks about DCCPA's future is what does one do with that connection? In other words, because SBF and FTX were so heavily involved in the drafting early on, what does it mean for the future of DCCPA if they are, in fact, so crushingly disappointing that DCCPA as a whole could potentially be called into doubt? If I recall correctly, under this DCCPA, it would have been the CFTC that would be the regulatory body for cryptocurrency. And I realize, you know, we already have such an alphabet soup going on, but does crypto need its own regulatory board? Because, I mean, it's just so different from so many things that are out there. It's so many things at once. Does there need to be an entity that, you know, specializes in this new frontier? Potentially. Exactly as you said, JQ, that the CFTC had a big responsibility in the DCCPA. But there is obviously a potential argument to be made that maybe we think about digital assets in a more specialized way, either have a unit that comprises different agencies or potentially have a different set of regulators working together under the oversight of an organizing framework, or otherwise have potentially a separate regulator as a whole. Now, this is something that would require a lot of political maneuvering to be able to have the existing agencies give up some of their power. It feels more or less likely that agencies themselves are going to fight to get the authority here rather than create and carve out a potentially new body to deal with it. But it's not unheard of that we do have potentially new bodies to deal with certain kinds of new risks that might arise. For example, in the case of auditing, there's a specific body, the PCAOB, the peekaboo, that is designed to oversee the industry in that context, right? So one does have potential carve-outs for certain kinds of industry at the same time, 
there needs to be a case to be made that the existing agencies are going to be unable to do the job here. And it's going to be hard to push that case forward because it's going to need a lot of political will and conversation to take some of the regulation away from the existing agencies that have experience and expertise and so forth. We've talked about Congress a lot, but do we know where the Biden administration stands on all of this? Well, the Biden administration, in its last statement on the issue, and this was certainly pre-FTX, encouraged agencies to work together in order to come up with a plan for crypto reform. So there was a White House executive order that included a number of different steps that crypto industry participants could take, as well as regulators could take, to try and come up with a coherent plan for reform. So that executive order was interesting for two reasons. One, it showed an openness on the part of the White House to incorporate crypto into the regulatory space. And what that did essentially was legitimize crypto and give it some credibility in a way that arguably had not existed before. In other words, you know, crypto was no longer seen as a kind of fringe, as an outside asset class, as something to be shunned but rather potential industry that could be incorporated and mainstreamed through the assertion of regulatory authority with different regulators cooperating and working together and studying the crypto phenomenon more broadly. So that's really the last White House statement on the issue. What they will say after FTX is anybody's guess. Now, we haven't heard from the White House after that. And so, you know, it's a wait and see approach to see if there's any revision to that potential position. I think in the wake of this, people are really calling the legitimacy and the future of cryptocurrency into question. What does all of this mean for cryptocurrency moving forward? It's anybody's guess. We are at this existential mark where we have really no idea what's going to happen next. There is this huge sense of doom as well as this potential to see whether or not there is some real value in this technology that could be harnessed, notwithstanding the enormous black eye that has been suffered by the industry as a whole. Mm. Now, coming back to our earlier conversation, so much of the financial industry, so much of the crypto industry, particularly in the at the edges of innovation, depends on confidence, depends on trust, depends on integrity, depends on a sense that it can do the job better than current traditional institutions can. And unfortunately, the problem with what has happened in the context of FTX is that the failure has been so brazen, has been so egregious, has been so systematic, that it's really hard to make the case that, in fact, crypto is doing a better job because its chief proponent, its golden institution has failed so spectacularly. And crypto is having a hard time making the case for itself because many of its protocols potentially are not becoming manifest in real life. In other words, how are they helping people get credit in a way that they could use to buy their houses or to get paid or to achieve some kind of economic stability in ways that potentially traditional finance can make a clearer case for? What is the connection of crypto to the real economy? So skeptics need to be convinced about how crypto can actually help make finance more efficient, make payments more efficient, make the ability of traditional market participants to help them do their job better. What is the ability of crypto to do that? And that's something that many in the industry currently are working to articulate as a way to bring some confidence back. But again, it seems like it's a long road, both to make that case, to make the case that crypto can do it better than traditional market participants, and that they can do it with the trust and confidence of the population as a whole. Yesha Yadav, thank you so much for joining us today. 
JQ, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure and a privilege to get to be on the show. Um, such an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. That's all for us today. Thank you to Liz Lopato and Yesha Yadav for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, Jonquilin Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.